Welcome back to the Full Me 9 podcast. I'm Sky, and joining me tonight is someone who first came on Full Me 9 back in April of 2020 when he joined Steve Amos and I to discuss the career of legendary film composer Jerry Goldsmith. He's an expert in all things film score related and has created a massive collection of film scores on vinyl that's probably worth more than what I earn in a year. He's also a seasoned podcaster of over 10 years and one of the co-hosts of the Pop Culture Gamers podcast. It's our good friend, Mr. Stephen Simpson. Stephen, welcome back, sir. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this to jump back on. It seems a Two years? Is it really that long? It is. It was the um, the middle of the first lockdown, 2020. God, I penned some in for you for, for years to come, but it's like, yeah, you're so busy in, in what you do, and you do a grand job, by the way. Well, it, it, that's very kind of you to say, but we should have had you on, like, you know, way sooner before now. But with Halloween looming, we thought we would give you all a suitably themed episode. But many of our listeners have been requesting that we bring back our favourite five section. So, tonight... We'll be expanding that to fill an entire episode as Stephen and I discuss our favourite horror film scores. But before we start, this episode is brought to you in conjunction with Silo Wave Records, where until November the 5th, if you use the promo code FILM89, that's F-I-L-M-89, all in caps, you will get 15% off all purchases. Now, Steve, as a massive vinyl record fan and valued customer of Silo Wave Records, mm. tell our listeners a little bit about them. I just suddenly came across them from word of mouth. And um, I think the first vinyl I picked up was Christine from John Carpenter. And I picked up a few every now and then. He's, he's a great friend to chat to on Facebook. And I know he'll always do me a favour if, if he wants to put something by for me like he did with The Exorcist at one point. He's a good lad. But he's independent. He does pick up stuff like from uh, Waxworks Records. So always go into, go into his website and have a good browse. And he's got plenty of stuff there. Anything that sort of takes your fancy from what we talk about tonight will probably be somewhere in there, possibly anyway. Yeah, the um the, the the offer will be it'll be in the um the notes uh, on on the, yeah. the Film Eighty Nine website page for the episode, but it's SiloWave spelled P S I L O W A V E. That's SiloWave dot com. So for those who haven't listened to any of our episodes with our uh, favorite three, five, or ten sections, the way it's going to work is Stephen's going to start with his number five pick of his favorite horror film score. Then it's going to be my turn to discuss my number five. Then Stephen's number four, my number four, and so on. So. Stephen, before we start, are you a big fan of horror? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's been ingrained in me since, oh, I don't know how long, even probably earlier in the days of Hammer, when I used to watch them as a kid in the 70s. And obviously, I remember going to watch, I suppose because the age I was, sort of Disney Disney movies and Bond movies, and I'd be up there in the, you know, going through the doors, and there'd be a big poster of The Omen there that could be anything. And I'd be thinking, what this is all about? And not knowing until years later that I get to see some of these movies that I couldn't do at the time, but I just fell in love with it. And I, it's just, I don't know, I just get a good kick out of horror movies. As much as I do, I love everything else that's out there, and I, don't get me wrong, I, my collection of Blu-rays is very vast from one spectrum to the other. But I think you just get a certain rush with horror. And certain movies, probably what we'll be discussing, are those sort of movies that give you that rush. And it doesn't matter how many times you see them, you think you can see something else in there that you've not recognised, or even a sound or a note that you think, well, where have I heard that before? You know, it's it's just amazing that you can listen to something or watch something and realise you don't know everything still. Yeah. Especially after prepping for today yeah a couple of bits and pieces that i didn't realize you know it, even as much as my my enthusiasm and knowledge goes um, sometimes i don't know everything but you know you still find out more yeah the thing with me and horror is the fact that it's just such a 
a broad genre. It a discussion came up on Twitter a few weeks ago, and I'm probably going to contradict my my uh, viewpoint <laughs> on this tonight with regarding whether or not Jaws is a horror film. I've always been like, well, I don't know. It is to me is so much more than just a horror film. It's that sounds like I, I'm, I'm being quite disparaging towards horror films. To me, Jaws just exists in a different realm where it straddles multiple different genres mm. but you and i steve haven't we we've come to an agreement that tonight it's not going to be there this is the it's not going to be in either of our top fives and that's going to completely contradict my response to that tweet where i said yeah it, it's amongst other things it's definitely a horror because if it's not a horror then what is it but we've tried to rationale our reasoning behind this and we why we're not picking jaws and aside from the fact that we do intend to take you know, a bit of a, a deep dive at some point on the, the career of John Williams in a future episode where Jaws is going to be spoken about, we've discussed Jaws endlessly on the podcast. Mm. But I think also it almost seems unfair to pick Jaws because it's not just a horror film. Now, you could argue that Alien isn't just a horror film. It's certainly not. It's a science fiction film, I think, first and foremost. And it's also a horror film. Just like Aliens is part action film, part war film and also science fiction but yeah that is our kind of flaky rationale as to why jaws is not going to be uh, appearing in either of our top fives because it would be otherwise wouldn't yeah, it because it would be probably it probably would be number one wouldn't it yeah it'd be close yeah. i'd say that so steven what's your number five okay so i have tweaked it this evening i've been listening to some music and i've decided to go back to 1979 for number five Ooh. uh with jerry goldsmith's alien oh <laughs> Where have you got it? Because I'm, I'm sure you, I'm sure you have. It's it's my number three. <laughs> oh well, that's fine. Do you know what? If I do this again in a week's time, it'd be different. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's never a straight. This is never a straight hard answer to say this is my top five. I will say there's certain films that are my all-time favourites, and they always will be. And that's like Blade Runner, for example. Yeah, it is. It's one of those films, one of my favourite sci-fi movies of all time. Although I love 50s, 60s, and 70s, 80s, or whatever. But I didn't know where to put it, and after changing my top five twice, I think and listening to it again, it had to be in there. But it's in the top five, which is where it needs to be. Mm. It can be five, it can be four. I, you know, I just decided to put it there for for the reason of how I feel at the moment in in this last couple of weeks. And I know in another week's time, I could say, Do you know what, I, I nearly, I just, I've already moved one from from four to three. Because I just been listening to it, and it, I could do the same to this album, especially when I've got I've got four vinyl box set collection of it, which has got like fifty odd pieces of music or something stupid. Wow! I think the version I've always listened to of this, the, the mm. one that's currently available on Spotify, it's not that long. I'm just having a look because I do have the box in front of me. Because yeah, you know, if if it's that many vinyls, then it's going to be you know quite a lengthy score. But yeah, certainly the the version of Jerry Goldsmith's Alien score I've listened to on Spotify, it runs for thirty six minutes and forty six seconds. That's that's nothing. Oh well, considering I've got the re some of the original the original album the com- the original complete score, which is two albums. Yeah. And a bonus tracks of rescored and alternate cues that they didn't use in the movie. Yeah, that's the thing with um with Jerry Goldsmith with Alien. He, he, there was a lot of alternate cues used, wasn't there? And although we've mentioned this before, and we might even go over a little bit of old ground, it is fantastic. And Jerry Goldsmith only getting one Oscar in his in his lifetime was not good enough, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, we we, we said it on the Goldsmith episode. Yeah, there's times, and it's usually when I'm listening to a Jerry Goldsmith score where I think <laughs> the jury is still out on whether or not Jerry Goldsmith is the greatest film composer of all time. And the only thing that stops me from confirming that in my mind is the existence of John Williams and the fact that so many of his scores are, mm. are just next level iconic. But 
I do think that Jerry Goldsmith is the most, I think, versatile of all the film composers I can think of. Yeah, he, I mean, even for this film, he once said that space is a great unknown. And I think, I think he's right with how he put the score together. Although the point of fact that he had the original title composed and it was obviously strange, weird noises and everything else that was going in it. The original one took him a day to write, where this took him five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and what can you say about a composer that can do that? Yeah, well, you know, Alien is already one of the most atmospheric films you'll ever see in terms of the visuals and, and the directorial flair of Ridley Scott. And, and the score that Goldsmith gave to the film is, is it's, you know, it's a benchmark in terms of minimalism and, and music used purely to set mood and tone and create a sense of atmosphere. But he also has these moments of like epic 2001 Space Odyssey grandeur. Mm. This is one of the masters on it, on absolute top form. I mean, I didn't realise this, but you know when you hear that that, that whistling, whirling noise um, that you hear during the score, especially when I think when, when when the ship's landing on the planet for the first time. Yeah. And it, that's just an Indian conch shell run through an echo tape delay machine. Yeah. <laughs> and he actually used that in pattern as well. So he does use his effects pretty well and he does go back to them. I suppose other than if we were going to go and mention Star Trek and what he used for that, that was slightly different and he kept it to that. But he's got a tone and a sound that you know, if you listen to any score of his, you, you, you can tell that it's him, can't you? I think he's got that ident of, of how he sounds. Yeah, and, and the bit of music in the score that always sticks out for me is after the main titles when we're on the Nostromo mm -hmm. and, and we see you know, we're going through those those like empty corridors and then we're in the stasis pod room and, and the bit where the stasis pods come to life and there's kind of like jump cuts yeah, and, and then they're all awake and it's just, just the way the music elevates elevates the actual pods opening up doesn't it yeah and it, that to me is, is where 2001 had kind of classical music for most of the score. This is that sort of quality of music in terms of how it's structured, but it's done specifically for the film. It's not existing pieces of classical music picked and then the visuals are made to match the music. It's kind of like the other way around. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's just a phenomenal score. And, and even then in the moments of horror and tension, you know, the bits where, um, what's Veronica Cartwright's character? Uh, why am I blanking on her name now? <laughs> <laughs> where, where, you know, where the alien is, is just killed Yafit Koto and then, and then it's going for her mm. and it's just you know the, the, the way he builds tension is incredible well even with the even with the chains and the cat in the water yeah Harry Dean Stanton yeah yeah I mean that's, that's, that's superb and I think that tone and the way it works right the way through the movie oh, it's yeah. Lambert isn't it Veronica Carter it's Lambert uh, Harry Dean Stanton is Brett and Yafit Koto is Parker brain fart <laughs> and uh, do you know there's something else I found out which is really interesting I, again this is going to come up a few times tonight he was influenced by um, Christoph Pendrecki as well yeah and that man incredible you know this, this this man here this Polish composer is going to crop up a few times tonight yeah so that's your number five that's my number three mm. uh, <clears throat> my number five it's Bernard Herrmann Psycho now Everyone knows Bernard Herrmann's score for Psycho for those stabbing strings uh, as Marion Crane is off in the shower Mm. But it's the rest of the score that, for me, really marks it out as some of Herman's best work. It really sets up the sense of atmosphere and has it's got a really film noir feel to it. And it was shamelessly paid homage to by composer Richard Band in Stuart Gordon's 1985 horror cult classic Reanimator. I watched that maybe a year or two ago. I could yeah. not believe how much the music in Reanimator is. Well, actually, you need to. I, I do have the score myself. Yeah, uh, it, it's psycho. It's it it's is. not even an homage. It's, it's more of a rip off. It's a blatant. Yeah, it is. It's a blatant rip off. And that yeah. first that first track on the intro, and it, it's literally got it's literally 
cut for cut at a certain point. Yeah, and, and the psychothemia was also famously sampled by Buster Rhymes on his track Gimme Some More back in 98. Mm. You know, we've, we've talked about Bernard Herrmann um, previously on the podcast, myself and D, Dave Eves in our Vertigo episode. Vertigo is a phenomenal score. Oh, it is. But that is more film noir. Where it is, is. I, I, I do have that score, by the way. That's yeah. another one I've got. And it's, I mean, I think I, I think I did a bit of chat with, with um, James Hancock on Ron Will with, with, with Bernard Herman at one point when we were doing something. And everything he's done, whether it's Jason the Argonauts or whatever, it's just so rich with just feel, you know, it just comes alive. Yeah. I mean, the beginning of obviously when Psycho starts, and you got you got Marion in 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 the um, hotel room or the, the the flat. Just the tone of that music is superb. I love it. Yeah, it's it's because the first part of the film, before we realise what's happened, before the shocking death in the shower, it is a film noir score, isn't it? Mm. Because we've got Marion Crane. She she's got this money. We, you know, we've seen like her in the scenes with John Gavin, and we think that this is a woman on the run with you know money which she's embezzled from her um, em- employer's client, and then she goes on the run. But then obviously she checks into the Bates Motel when the film reveals this trump card with a shower scene. The way that film <laughs> that that scene is shot and edited, because in yeah. your mind you see the knife go into her, even though you never do. Mm. But it's that stabbing those strings. And, and that's, that, that probably set off the tone for everything else that came after that. Yeah. And anyway, it's just as iconic as, as John Williams's Jaws theme. Mm. And, and finishing with that water going down the, um, the plug hole. You know, it's just everything coming together. You know, a director, you know, arguably at the top of his game. You know, the fact that by that point, he'd done so many colour films and he'd made some incredible use of colour in films as well. Like The Trouble with Harry and yeah, uh, yeah. To, to Catch a Thief, which I think are two of the most... I don't think they... They wouldn't be in my top five Hitchcocks. I, I don't think they're anywhere near his best films. But in terms no. of how they look, they look phenomenal. But then he went back to black and white in 1960 for Psycho. Mm. Absolute genius. And Bernard Herrmann's score for it. I listened to it in its entirety the other day. And I was... I was in two minds whether or not it would make my top top five, but listening to it from start to finish, it was like, well, it's got to be there. Yeah. It's, it's phenomenal. And how can I not pick a Bernard Herrmann score when we're doing, you know, a top five like this? I've listened to it many times. And I, just, I say, this was just a pure fluke when you talked about it. And I thought, I've just literally been to Frome, popped into a record store that I've not been to a while, and I found the complete score on CD, and I just had to have it. Mm. <laughs> and I was just sitting there listening to it, and then it's superb. It really is. Even, the, as you say, the beginning leading up to the hotel. I mean, the bit just before that, when when Marion goes to, to trade the car in because she doesn't want to be stopped by the police and trying to keep herself to her so no one knows who she is. And it's always tension there. And she's constantly on the edge, yeah. right to her death. I mean, her daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis, do you know what I mean? I mean, it runs in the family, doesn't it? Maybe Jamie Lee Curtis will come up later. Maybe. <laughs> so that's my number five. Stephen, what's your number four? Okay. So this is a film I've been itching to talk about for probably years on a podcast. So I don't get the chance to do it. Um, we spoke about possibly next year with, with something special. But The Exorcist has been one of my favourite horror movies of all time. And although there's only, what, something like 17 minutes in the film of music, it just freaks me out listening to it. It still gives me that same atmosphere if I'm watching the movie. Again, you've got some music by, by the Polish composer, Christoph Pendricki. You've got the track, which I think... You, I think frequent found pure by luck by just putting some albums on and dropping a needle and saying no 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 what's this and tubular bells is one of my favorite albums of all time as well for mike oldfield yeah although that's the first five minutes is only used in the movie it's very well represented yeah because isn't the actual track tubular bells something like 21 minutes long it's it's one it's, it's one it's one album so side a and side oh, b right. and it's just, and it's just called tubular bells right and it just blends into music all the way through 
And then the climax, if you, I don't know if you've ever heard the climax, is where they bring in all the instruments one by one and it ends with tubular bells. When I was a kid, and you're probably going to want to bash me across the head for this, Steve, like, but yeah. when I was a, a little kid, my dad had what I thought at the time was quite an extensive collection of vinyl, probably wasn't compared, to, you know, anywhere near compared to yours. But when I was a kid, mm. you know, it, it was it was significant and I went through it and, you know, my own. Mm-hmm. But I used to look at, my, look at my dad's collection and there was stuff on it like um, War of the Worlds, which I never listened to. Why did I never listen to that? You've never heard it? Never. No, as a kid, I never listened to it. Right. And one of the albums here as well was Tubular Bells. And like that, that cover image with the tubular, you know, Over triangular bell thing was just etched into my mind. Yet, I, I, for, for whatever reason, it kind of felt off limits to me. Mm. And my dad wouldn't mind it. He wouldn't mind it if I'd listened to it. But I just never did. And when I made the connection when I was older with The Exorcist, the music in that, and the fact that it was on that album, mm. and it was just like... What is wrong with you? Why did you have that weird mental sort of barrier where you couldn't just take it out of your sleeve, chuck it on, and just listen to it? Mm. I think then, if, if I'd done that, I would have had more of a link to that music yeah. than I did. So it was such a strange thing, but you brought that up and it just brought that memory back to me. It is, and I've got, I think, I've got my original pressing from early 1970. I think it was 72 that album came out, I might be wrong. Isn't it 73? The, uh, the, with the actual, The Exorcist is 1973. Yeah. But I think Tubular Bells might have come out before that. And I can't. I can't reach it. Can I reach it for you? Well, here? according to Spotify, it's 1973. Oh, okay. So it was the same year. Yeah. Feels longer for me, but there you go. Because I've got that. I've got every every version of that album, but it's on CD. Well, there you go. You've just heard me. I've pressed play on my phone, and it's actually right. The Two of the Bells part one is 20... It's 26 minutes long. Mm. And part two is... Yeah, part two is 23 minutes and 16 yeah. seconds. So interestingly enough with that, so on the original album, you had the last part of the, the half of the track is the introduction of all the instruments coming together in a big crescendo. Yeah. And Mike Oldfield would do the, um, would say, bass guitar, and you'd hear that come, dun, 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 dun. Then it would say something else, and it would just bring everything in one by one by one by one by one. And then when they re-recorded it, Years later, they used John Cleese's voice to do it, and he did the narration. Right. I don't mind it. I can cope with it. But then I'd say I've got a box CD set with the. There's like there's more than one Tubular Bells album now. There's about three. Yeah. So they, he's, Mike Holford has brought other stuff out with the same title, but different music. Well, as as for the film itself, it, it's an all timer, isn't it? It is, and uh, it is. Uh, people, it's not shock horror about this movie. I mean, I know a lot of people these days will probably think it's very tame, but really? I don't. Uh, yeah, some people. You know, the, the, the scenes with Reagan and the crucifix and some of the stuff that comes comes out with that girl's mouth. Yeah, I mean, some. I mean, some of the stuff that that you see on the screen, and even if you read the book as well, which I've read many times, she's even more. We, I think is vulgar the right word to use, possibly. I don't know. But for me, I, I can watch it. And although I have discrepancies over the two versions now because they brought the director's cut out. It, it, it's not a director's cut, is it? It's it's like that version of Alien, which uh, Ridley Scott did for the theatrical release back. I think um, it was something like the 20th anniversary of the film. I saw it in the cinema. Mm. And it, it was the, in inverted commas, director's cut. But that is never Ridley Scott's intended version of the film. No. It, it was always the theatrical cut. And, and, they were, and with this movie, basically what that was, was, you know, they had their arguments over this movie. Freakin is so protective of it, if it's right, the right word to use. He didn't want, he, his idea of how the film should be was read to the letter. Blatty wanted a bit more differently and wanted other pieces in there. And it never happened, but they still talk to each other. And there's a good couple of documentaries that will be well worth watching for, for maybe later. Yeah, but we're, we're definitely going to discuss this in depth yeah. next year. And 
I think without doubt, Steve Amos is going to be joining us because it's also one of his favourite films. Yeah, yeah. So interesting enough, if we, go, if we just turn back to the music then, Bernard Herrmann had a shot at this. There was a conversation with Freakin and Herrmann went to see the movie on the screening room and he came out and said, well, I might be able to help you with this piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, but you have to leave it with me. You know, I'll mail you something in the post, basically. That's what he would say. Yeah. And he couldn't believe it. He said, you, you're, you're all kidding. And he said, no, no, that'd be fine. So that didn't go down well. Not with William Friedkin. <laughs> no, not at all. And then He is not the sort of man that is going to take that from anyone. From watching his documentaries and how he talks and how I, you listen to him, he doesn't take crap from anybody. He doesn't. And uh, all for it, because he's done some good stuff over the years. And then with Bernard Herrmann not getting a shot at it, then Lalo Schifrin had a go. Same thing. He wasn't happy. He didn't like the idea of church bells and these organs. I mean, he even want, they even wanted at one point to say, just to cut the erect scene out, I don't, we don't need it. Yeah, what are you on about? It, it's a part of the movie. I directed this. I want this in there. You're just going yeah. to do the score. But he was just, just never happy. And really, from there onwards, it was some library music with uh, with Christoph. And that, that moment of, I suppose, a eureka moment with just sitting there playing albums one by one, direct, put the needle on, listen to that note, note. I wonder what had happened if Tubular Bells was never in that chunk of vinyl he was listening to at the time. It is. It's just one of those movies that freaks me out. It scared me. I saw it when I was 15 in the cinema. I got away with the scene at 15. Are you giving away your age, you know, Steve? <laughs> but when I saw it in 15, it wasn't 1973, all right? So oh, right, okay. Yeah, so... <laughs> <got> um, so <laughs> well played, sir. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So from the point of the fact that the history of The Exorcist Bill and Film Centre decided to take it off the market, it wasn't banned because of the because of the video nasties that was going on at the time, which we were all enjoying until someone took them away from us. Basically, um, they just thought they couldn't give it a, a certificate, and that's why it was off the shelves for some time. I picked up a VHS clamshell from Warner Brothers, found it in Smith's for a few quid. So I did have a copy for some time on VHS until the days of Blu-ray and DVD. Well... I was lucky enough to catch this in the cinema for the 25th anniversary re-release back in uh, 1998, and I'm pretty sure it was the theatrical version. It would have been, yeah. It would have been. Yeah, it wasn't you know the version you've never seen as it's now called, yeah. which is, I think, 10 minutes longer. <laughs> and yeah, it was... I've probably told this story before, but me and my girlfriend at the time, we were there in the cinema. I'd certainly seen it. I'm not sure if she'd seen it. She was a big horror fan. <laughs> it's not one of my finest moments. But in all the bits, we're laughing. It's completely inappropriate. She and I were absolutely crying laughing and not able to control it. And it was one of those things where, you know, when you find yourself laughing at a funeral, if God forbid I ever happens to you, it's happened once to me. Mm. It goes one of two ways. You stifle it or it just goes the other way and this was a case of it was going the other way and when Reagan's doing all of these horrendous things <laughs> on screen we were both belly laughing isn't that sometimes fear because some people I know and one of my daughters especially fear turns to laughter in that point of view but then I suppose you were in, in a certain mood and I, I must admit I I think I did the same mind you I think I could do every right to do it with Jaws Revenge and the late night strand when it came out Oh no! This this wasn't. This was literally laughing. I think because mm. like what Regan's doing is so shocking. Then yeah. there's that thing of oh my god, why are we laughing? We shouldn't be laughing. And then everyone else, you know, we could feel daggers from people around us, like looking at us, thinking, "What is wrong with you two? And then it went from there, really. It, but if anyone was <laughs> sat there on that show in all of those years ago, like twenty four years ago, or whatever it is, 
I really do apologise if we spoiled your enjoyment of that film. <laughs> like I say, it's, it's not one of my best, better moments in the cinema. Man, I've, I've done some weird ones in my time, but trust me, and even some girlfriends I've taken to see all sorts of movies. They didn't like some of them, you know, it's just... It, it's a classic, and yeah, we, we'll, we'll go into a bit more depth about that, I think, uh, next year for the uh, 50th anniversary. Mm. My number four, Ennio Morricone. He's one of the all-time masters, and the one score of his, which I, I couldn't not... You know, put on this list is his score from 1982. Now, as anyone that has listened to our third episode way back then, uh, episode three, they'll know that The Thing is one of my all-time favourite films, period. And Ennio Morricone and John Carpenter's score, whilst not being one I've listened to in isolation, other than a handful of times, in terms of its purpose as an accompaniment to the film, it works perfectly in establishing a brooding and foreboding atmosphere the first part of john carpenter's apocalypse trilogy because it is such a apocalyptic downbeat film the score it, it is quite minimalist mm. it's very quiet score as well sometimes yeah it is it's it's not one of these bombastic or majestic scores like some of the ones we're going to talk about and like some of the moments of alien which are all about grandeur this is all kind of like subdued ambient music but so atmospheric and it's, it's a score that's so good Quentin Tarantino used unused cues from the score in The Hateful mm. Eight. And I don't think a score has ever done such a good job of conveying a sense of dread and isolation anywhere near as well as well as this one. I think it just goes part and parcel with the um, the atmosphere and the, the premise of the movie that they're on their own in the nowhere. And just from that first moment in the score, which kicks in as the helicopter's going across the mountains with the, um, with the, the boom, sweet, boom. it just... And I, that's why boom, I love boom. it so much. You know, that, it does. That, that just, it's like just a rhythmic thrumming heart beat and that's what it is it, it's something almost beastial and you think it's the heartbeat of the dog primordial it could be the heartbeat of the dog running yeah because obviously as we later find out it's not a dog <laughs> it's not a wolf or a but there is this thing steve mm. isn't it which you and i have discovered in in prep for this episode that's like the, the version i listened to contained music which isn't even in the film and then you've got a version on vinyl which has got four additional cues by john carpenter which are actually bits of music from the film which are not yeah. anything that morricone composed I don't know the full story. I know about these these lost cues. Wherever or not they were never used, that he had some ideas for them and, and left their, you know left them any to it himself. Because I'm sure they would have yeah. been chatting at some point numerous times how this was going to be going. Even though I'm, I'm I've got I've got the thing in my hand here, which I say the vinyl, and the one I originally bought. Please, yeah, please 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 be specific <laughs> as to what thing you've got in your hand. <laughs> and this is the one I picked up. As I said, when we we've chatted before, when we chatted it for before years ago and I mentioned about picking up the thing in that London store and this is the piece of vinyl I've still got now as much as the, the new one yeah. and it was always that that humanity part one when that starts I think you know it's not actually it's part two actually isn't it it's not part one because this score is not in order it just puts my back up and I it just brings me back to watching that film back in um, back in the days when people hated it <laughs> and didn't like it which, yeah, like, you know, the, the same thing applies to the film released on the same day of, of 25th of June 1982, Blade mm. Runner. How did it fail? There are many theories relating as to why these two films failed when they did. E.T. always gets the blame for it. But I don't get that, though, because personally, I, I enjoyed them so much. I really did. And I just went back for second or second helpings half the time, you know. It's like, <clears throat> maybe I didn't hear much. Obviously, with no internet those days, I'll be reading Starlog and Starburst to get my, my fix, but... You know, there's these American, these two dudes, isn't there, that do their film reviews. Oh, Siskel and Yeah. <laughs> they do love to whinge, don't they? The reviews of this film by, you know, legitimate, respected film critics at the mm. time were just way off the mark. And I think 
I'm pretty sure the Roger Ebert actually came round on his thinking about... Um, it's either this or Blade Runner, but I know that he did an about turn on one of them, which he gave a particularly uh, cut-in review to. Yeah. This one film, which didn't go through multiple versions to get a, you know, a final cut years later, this has remained untouched apart from the expected remastering which this this has undergone mm. you know to just bring it up to you know blu-ray and 4k capabilities this film has just not been tampered with it was perfect back in 1982 and i mean this is as perfect a film as i've ever mm. seen and that's down to you know the visuals the, the casting what a cast you know the, the performances like the dog the performance of the yeah, dog obviously you can't not forget um rob botine on his on his work rob botine's uh, physical effects are just and it's not just him you know there, there was you know, a big team but Rob Boutine primarily you know did a lot of the, the memorable stuff in you Phil Tippett did but it's you know it's the physical practical effects which are just so incredible it's Dean Cundy and yeah I think Dean Cundy is the um, director of photography he is yeah who, who shot you know, loads of carpenter films and you know the Back to the Future films Cinematography is phenomenal. The, the the trouble they went to with the shooting, uh, God, it's not Finsk in Norway, is it? That's the Empire Strikes Back. Uh, again, this is all stuff I went went into in detail in, in, in episode. Mm. Two, I mean, they went they went out there, like, didn't they? And it was no snow at the time. They built the set, and yeah. the snow came down. Ah, oh, it was British Columbia, yeah. wasn't it? And compared this to some yeah. other movies we talk about, this was real snow. This wasn't in a soundstage. Oh no, no, this was yeah. Ironically, then they were shooting all the interior scenes in like. Uh, Los Angeles in, in like the baking summer and they had that, they had to wear these big you know winter coats and just go back and listen to our third episode it's uh I've listened to it for a few times myself to be honest I have done and, and Morricone's score yeah and I I, I see Morricone and Carpenter's score because Carpenter some of the tracks which are in the film they, they are John Carpenter scores mm. and, I, and I think it was just a case of he didn't want to take the credit away from Morricone who was obviously an icon of his yeah he was I mean he, he was he did some music at his wedding as well didn't he apparently so yeah. he's He's been around with him. But do you, just quickly, though, I don't think we've you ever mentioned it. What was your thoughts on the prequel? Uh, we mentioned in the episode, we did go into it. It baffles me because they did all of those effects practical. And then the studio at the 11th hour came in and said, scrap what you've done there. We don't like it. We want to go all CG. Mm. Why would you do that? And if you look, there, there is a behind some behind the scenes stuff and uh, making of on the Blu-ray. And, and it shows the, the original practical effects they did. And you think, why would they ever go and dump those in, in favour of CG? Do, do, do they completely not understand that the, the original... Not, as much as not pay, may, say be paying homage as they did during the film and there's little fan service in it, it would have felt right to do it that way, regardless yeah. of what era that was, you know, yeah. late, as late as it was filmed in, you know, now. And it's a faithful prequel because there's there's things in that film which tie in perfectly to the events that follow in the American research camp. Mm. And and obviously the stuff is set up in the Norwegian one. It's like when McCready goes goes to explore it with, you know, the others and you see an axe embedded in That's the it. wall. Yeah. And then in this version we see the axe, you know, the axe and and how it gets, you know, embedded in the wall. And then as the film was finishing, I was like, Ah oh, no, they've there's one bit they've missed out that when they find a guy on the radio machine who's cut his throat and his wrist the film finishes and then there's a brief bit of credit and then you have that bit at the end I thought yes they threw it in they did it that's it home run <laughs> and then at least, and at least having the actually you could have spliced those films together if you felt like it the one would feed in perfectly to the other mm. it's got its problems but I'm not one of its main major detractors so yeah that's my that's my number four uh, The Thing what's your number three my number three I've gone back to, I think it's 76, and with Jerry Goldsmith on The Omen. Another Jerry Goldsmith. 
I know it's maybe is it wrong to have two of one composer in this no, list? No, God no, it's, it's your favourites. And again, I was listening to this, you know, moments ago again, and I moved it up a notch because this film, again, this is a film that I remember seeing the poster in the cinema when I was a little kid, not knowing what the hell it was. And then my first viewing was on TV in an ITV premiere at the time. And that was the only one we had until they released it on VHS later. You know, having to put up with that, cut the adlets out because I watched it with it. And, and I was fascinated and I, I gave it to my dad's brother and he was fascinated with it. Even going onwards with the other two movies as well, um, Goldsmith just carried on that roller coaster ride through that music through all three movies. Even though the third one probably peters out a little bit, but it still has those moments. And yeah, it's such a fantastic, satanic score, if we should call it that. Well, good good old uh, Avi Satani, just... I didn't know this. So, you know when you hear the... Sorry about this, I'm going to ruin it completely. Saying, Biguus, Corpius, Edumius, Tolius, Sorpius, Satani, which is Latin for we drink blood, we eat the flesh, and rise the body of Satan. Wow. And then you have the Avisante, Aviverse Christiustius, which is Latin for hell Satan and hell the Antichrist. Aside from like all of that bombastic choral stuff, Goldsmith uses lots of romantic cues in the early parts of the film. And that, and that, yeah. that, that surprised me, again, because I've not watched The Omen for years. <laughs> Those moments when uh, Patrick Troughton's character, the priest, <laughs> and David Warner's famous uh, death scene. Which he was never there for that, by the way, was he? No. He wasn't on, on set. Yeah, it's really fitting. And whereas you say, like, you know, um, The Exorcist had like something like 17 minutes of, of music, Goldsmith really went to town on this one. I think it's about 34 minutes, I think, maybe in total, something like that. Yeah, there's far more score here for this film. <clears throat> but it always sets up what's happening because it's, it's like. Not, not, not the final destination idea because that was way after but you're going to see you're going to lead up to something happening that you know is going to is going to hit you and that music is following that pace and it's going faster and faster and faster and faster and that chorus would come in and come in and come in and as it happens it goes bang and then it just fades away again and until you for the next one the score was originally released that was 49 minutes long so that's quite a bit longer than like 70 minutes of the exorcist but mm. Yeah, it's those earlier tracks, like the the one, the new ambassador, and it, 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 the scenes, the early scenes with Lee Remick and uh, Gregory Peck. Yeah, the, the, but basically what they called the love theme as such, wasn't it? Yeah, and then you've got that, that, that track, The Dog's Attack, which is just, it's just all pure dread. And it ends on a kind of acceptably cheesy note with um, that song, The Pipe of Dreams. But yeah, it, it's, you know, grade A level Goldsmith again. That was actually the actual, because um, obviously on the album, they decided to want to put a, a track in like that. Yeah. Although the music was in there, it was his wife, Carol, that wrote the um, lyrics for that. And then she sang it. She was playing at piano and singing it. And they were recording at the time and she didn't know it. And that was the actual cut they used. She didn't even realise at the time, you listen to this and say, we recording? Yeah, yeah. Keep it going. She was playing away, doing what she does. And she was performed by her and sung by her. Yeah. Just the overall score. Even the, I love the scenes with the uh, what was for me as a kid maybe because it's now Legoland but it used to be Windsor Safari Park. All those monkeys going nuts and then we had the giraffes looking at him and they could feel that something wasn't right with the kid. Man, it just gets you. You've just blown my mind. The fact that Windsor Safari Park and Legoland are the same place. I went to Windsor Safari Park as a child and yeah. I've been to Legoland uh, as a parent. <laughs> I had no idea that they're the same. Did you ever recognise the entrance is exactly the same? It's still very... You are talking about 30 years apart, at least, I, you know, <laughs> maybe more. Wow. So that's your number three, Jerry Goldsmith's score for The Omen. Mm. My number three, obviously, is Alien, which was your number five, which we've discussed. So it's back to you, Steve, for your number two. 
So I've gone for someone whose music is not throughout the whole movie, but I think it's pivotal in what she did, and that will be The Shining with Wendy Carlos. Oh, yeah. What to say about the intro to this movie? Steve Amos and I uh, have discussed this film in depth on our uh, Shining and Doctor Sleep episode. I- I'm floored every time I watch this film by how perfect it is in every respect. You know, Kubrick mm. being the ultimate perfectionist director, where he took that search for perfection to extremes at the you know the duress of his actors and actresses and his crew. Mm. But my God. There is a strong argument that the the works of art which he left in his wake are worth any amount of suffering, which I know isn't a very moral answer. But when you look at this film and and and, and how it looks and how well crafted everything is, and and the way Wendy Carlos's music just works so perfectly on that that introduction, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, I mean the um, <clears throat> that introduction, what you've got with which is the cue for the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. She designed and created an, a musical instrument called the Circon. That's what she used to demo to Kubik, which convinced him that to use Carl, to use Wendy Carlos. If, any, if anybody's got the, uh, I know it's on the 4K. There's a great documentary, which is like a fly in the wall documentary. Yeah, got. it's on it's on the Blu-ray as well. Yeah, and this this one this one was just a, a piece. This piece with Wendy Carlos was a separate little bit of um, short doc. And she was chatting about that in the Clockwork Orange. But what she did there, and just just doing that, and although they used again, this is something that I didn't know until. And I'm, I'm, as I say, I love it when I find things that I'm not sure or I don't know about. The scene, there's a piece of music in Nexus called Polymorphia. And it, yeah, this was one of those mind-blowing discoveries that in the in the process of prepping for this episode, we've discovered. Yeah, as much as I got it, I can see it in black and white on the Exodus album, and I've got it on the CD. I've got a, I, I call it a bootleg CD because it's um it's every piece of music that was in the movie, and yeah. it's double CD. And I, I just the writing's very small. My my eyesight's not what it used to be. I do use my glasses. And I actually saw it there, and I actually played both pieces of music, and it's identical. Yeah. I realised it was, I think it was used when the baseball bat scene, well, you sent it to me. Um, you sent uh, mm. a link to a YouTube video, and it doesn't identify whether it's from The Exorcist or The Shine. I, I came back yeah. with you because you, you said, what's this from? And I went, oh, this, it's The Shining. And then when you also told me it was using The Exorcist, I was like, oh, wait, yeah, it is. And blew my mind. The fact that it's got a, a piece of music that is used to great effect in both films, and only now both of us are discovering this. Yeah, and something else I didn't realise is, actually, I don't know if you'll be aware of it, so The, the Shining has a, had had licensing issues, and the LP that came out back in back in, back in the day was uh, withdrawn because of it. If you wanted to purchase that album secondhand on eBay, you're looking at £250 a piece. Wow. It is the holy of the holy grails. Um, luckily enough, Mondo was able to release Wendy Carlos's two pieces, which was the uh, Rocky Mountains and the, and the theme, which I got on that seven-inch single. That piece of vinyl is just considering what it weighs and how small it is is worth so much money and just it's just i just i can't that's why i, I found this on discogs and realized that this was available this is probably the next best thing but probably even better because it's got every piece of music that was used in any shape or form even the trailer music you know with that clocking ticking noise yeah when you see the um the elevators open and all that that's that all music's on there the music for the documentary is on there just a fascinating piece of music to listen to well that is definitive isn't it mm, absolutely so you said to me being a bit i'm a bit anal sometimes but yeah no there's some certain things oh no i've oh whoa no that's that's not fair i've called you a completist no, that's it thank you yeah no maybe that's my wrong you know, interpretation of it some certain pieces of music or some if an album comes out and it's 
it's one that there's no hesitation because of what it is. Yeah. Like The Exorcist, like Halloween um, and other movies I've purchased over the years, I purchased at the time they came out. And that's why I have what I do have. Stuff now that's been repressed, re-released, they've got the licenses for it. Yeah. Sometimes I just can't say no. I'm, I'm the same, Stephen. I, I, over the years, the amount of films which I've owned across different formats and then the same film on the same format several times like and how many times I mean you no I mean, I mean I don't even want to talk with your Star Wars because nothing to do it but you know you bought that so many yeah. times and it's the same with you know films like Terminator 2 which I've, I've yeah. owned on like pretty much every format and Robocop mm. and Enter the Dragon there's films which I just they, they come out uncut or they, they come out in like a longer version or then they'd be remastered or then it'd mm. be the remastered one but with a load of features that the previous one didn't have and it's just like it was the same with the thing. And that's why I still haven't thrown my Arrow copy away, the Blu-ray. Yeah. Although I've now got the Studio Canal copy, which has got like four discs. I think it's got it's got the CD for the music. It's got the prequel in there, believe it or not. And you've got the Blu-ray and the 4K. But there's a documentary that I just adore about the thing, which is on the Arrow copy called Who Goes There? Yeah. You can't find it anywhere else, mm-hmm. so I, I couldn't part with it. Yeah. So that's your number two? Yes. My number two. Right, if you look at composer Christopher Young's filmography, it's never really going to compare with other film composers we're talking about here in terms of the quality of the films themselves, many of them being straight-to-video affairs. But his scores for the first two Hellraiser films, and in particular my choice here, the first one, are, for me, hands down, some of the most amazing pieces of horror film music I've ever heard. That score for Clyde Barker's 1987 film elevates it from fairly low budget horror because it did only cost $1 million to make to something majestic with a score that blends darkly twisted romantic cues and somber melancholy with music that is just perfectly pitched to some of the horrifically gory visuals. And, and that kind of gong or chime or, or whatever it is that announces the arrival of the Cenobites is mm. just a composer in complete mastery of his art. And following work such as this, it really does baffle me that Christopher Young isn't better known in his field. If someone was to Google his and look on Wikipedia, yeah. this would probably be top of the tree. In prep for this episode, there's, there's been a couple of standouts for me. One of them, I, I thought it maybe would make your list, but it's certainly going to be in my honourable mentions, which I'll come to, which took me by surprise as to how much I enjoyed the score because I've never listened to the score on its own. But, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, like, good idea. These two, Hellraiser and Hellbound Hellraiser 2, I, I've listened to these scores before. Mm. But listening to them now in prep for this episode, and in particular that score for the first one, it is just absolutely phenomenal. It's just this sort of darkly melancholy, sort of romantic sort of thing to it. Which, but at the same time, it's operatic as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It is. And this could, could have taken the top spot for me. It really could. I really do love the music that much. Mm. But as we'll come to with my number one, <laughs> there's only one film that could knock my number one choice off, and that's the film that we've made a, a, a conscious choice not to include in our top fives, which is Jaws. But mm. yeah, that's, that's my choice is for number two, Christopher Young's score for Hellraiser. Yeah. I, I, do you know what? I did watch this recently. I think I watched it a, a couple of, uh, maybe a month ago. And um, it does, I don't know if it, if it feels outdated slightly because of it, it looks like it's set in the 70s, doesn't it? But even though it is the 80s. It, it's, it's that, because it was shot in Britain, it's just got that rundown feel as Britain was in the late has, 80s. You know, you've got a good strong cast there, especially with um, someone, you, it was in Dirty Harry, believe it or not. Oh it? yeah, Andrew Robinson. And, yeah. And you've got Claire Higgins, who is just fantastic in the film. And you're right that the resurrection thing, Oh, the resurrection. It's got grandeur written all over it. Yeah. 
and I've played it many times. I've, I think I've chatted to um, Jay Blake, and we've talked about mm-hmm. it before on the quiet. That it's just such a wonderful score. Well, yeah, uh, you know, Jay Blake for sure. He's, he's interviewed Christopher Young, isn't he, for his for his he book? Yeah. yeah, and I, it's funny. I mean, I it's, if, if people are going to c- come out of this and they're going to listen to some of these scores and appreciate them, I think I'd be, I think it'd be a job well done. I think from how I feel about it. Yeah, I like to do to give someone an idea of some films. Maybe there's some others that maybe not. Even with some other stuff I've done in the past or in the last few weeks, some people haven't heard some of this music. They've never probably attempted to listen to this music. Um, I think some of the films they may have done, eighties horror has had a good strong revival with the um, In Search of Darkness documentaries. Yeah. So I think they they followed well from that. Everything that was... I saw every horror movie in the 80s in the cinema, and I think I was at the right age at the right time to enjoy that. And there's, I say, there's some... I, you know I could have put in a, a ton of different movies in there and made a different, completely different top five. But don't keep us waiting any longer, Stephen. What is your number one pick? Okay, so my number one pick is, and I'm just going to say that right now, is from 1978, and it's John Carpenter's original Halloween. Oh, it's my number one as well. It is. It had to, to be. It does, and it's and as much as I love, I've got so much horror music that I just adore and I listen to. And my wife does, she does occasionally say, you're listening to the same thing. I said, no, I'm listening to the 2018 version. <laughs> I'm listening, I've got, you know, I've got every John Carpenter album, all bar maybe one or two. And I've got multiple copies of even certain films in three versions, three copies of it. One, if, if you were to look at my, my John Carpenter collection now of any other character, any other composer, it's the biggest that I have in my collection. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> interestingly enough, though, Carpenter did admit that um, he was inspired by um, Argento Suspiria and Freaking the Exorcist. Yeah. Well, I'll, you know, I'll come. I'll come to the Exorcist comparison when I, you know, have my little mm. say on it. But Suspiria, really? Yeah, I mean, Suspiria is a good, good movie though. I, I would love the score to that. Do you think about how that score sounds? Uh, I've, I've had discussions with with Bill Scurry, and I am not a fan of Suspiria. I'm not. A fan oh, really? Of, no. Is, isn't it? Um, is it? Is it Goblin? Yes, it is. Yeah. And to me, a lot of the music in that film is like nails down a chalkboard. And I know it's supposed to be. I know it's supposed to be, but yeah. it's not a film score I could ever listen to in isolation. No, oh, I've got, I, I've got a copy of it. It's brilliant. <laughs> Maybe I need to rewatch it. Maybe I need to. Yeah, possibly it. do. I mean, it's a, that's a great. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Argento's movies. Um, I haven't seen the next one yet. Well, I, I, I'm a big fan. Um, I love Deep Red. Yeah. Uh, I love Tenebrae. Bird of the Crystal Plumage, in fact, is probably my favourite. But mm, yeah. I did not... I don't know, this is something about Suspiria. That, and maybe I had just lofty expectations because I did so much good about it, but I just don't think it's as good as well, certainly yeah. those other three films which I've mentioned, which I think are far better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And even though for a, for, a, for a film that had a relatively small budget, grossing eventually, what's it, like 65 million in its, at the time it came out. And it then giving us that, that giving us that slasher genre onwards. And it doesn't matter how many times I listen to the, some of those bars of music, I could have that, some of those on repeat and I could just listen. For me now, listening to the Halloween score has become, it's become a tradition every October. Mm. Like every October, when the summer nights draw out, or, or draw in, sorry, and you know, it's getting darker earlier, I like to walk the dog in the dark, chuck my earpods in onto Spotify, and I just listen to the score. This year, my tradition has been blown apart because Film 89 Towers has been undergoing renovation. Its, mm. it's resident guard dog has been <laughs> off elsewhere because of the, the building work that's been going on. And mm. I've only now had it back today, and I haven't been able to take it for a walk and, and do my October tradition of listening to the Halloween score whilst I walk the dog in the dark. But yeah, I, you know, I've spoken about John Carpenter's score 
for, for Halloween previously on other episodes and it is without doubt the horror film score I've listened to the most it is simple yeah. there is a degree of repetition certainly within the score but it's, it's so it's effective there for a reason isn't it yeah yeah it is and it's so effective and now iconic that I think it's easily as recognisable as the likes of Michael Phil's Tubular Bells and The Exorcist or any mm. other iconic horror score I can think of Carpenter's music it just well it manages to perfectly convey this sense of tension as Michael yeah. is stalking around Haddonfield both at night but also in broad daylight when he's stalking Laurie Strode it, it will always it, it will always occupy that top spot for me both in terms of certainly horror film scores but I think film scores in general I know it's funny that we've seen this grow in different versions from now till should I say last weekend when I went I've still, and, I've still not seen Halloween Ends yeah but I would not say a thing don't worry. But we've seen this progression of this music, and even though they, even for this last trilogy, and I, I'm going to say this because I, it's a part of it to me anyway, that Daniel Davies on this big, I think it was like a, not an old violin or an oboe or whatever it was, that gives this grinding noise during the score, just gets my, my neck and my hairs back up. And even though they just tweet a little bit, and they've given it a bit more depth with more orchestra compared to what he just used his synths at the time and his piano and everything else, which works great because I love just the piano piece when she's walking with her, her school books and he's, you know, you can hear him breathing behind her, following her, and it just creeps her out. The progression of, of how those scenes have gone is just uh, probably telling you how good the original was. You can't knock it for having more. I mean, Alan Howarth obviously got involved doing, I think, was it Halloween 4 possibly at the time? I can't remember now. So he did the score for that one. But using, obviously, some of John Carpenter's cues still because you, you do, don't you? It's always going to be number one, probably. I don't think nothing would take it off the top for me. Yeah, poss- possibly for me too. So that's it. Um, that's our favourite five. Uh, any honourable mentions, Steve? I could run through hundreds if I, if I did, but... Just give us the essentials then. Okay, so I thought I'd just give... Carpenter's just Christina's and I mean there are other movies he's done which are great but I did sit and listen to that again on its own and the synths in there are superb Mm -hmm. Uh, Charles Bernstein's Not on Elm Street with those three little piano cues uh, three little notes you're getting it it's just awesome I'm going to say I've listened not all of it yet but I've been listening to Doctor Sleep today and that even made me jump at one point in one cue (laughs) even when I was sitting here reading and last but not least I think Howard Shaw the Fly Scanners and the Brood for me are some of the best scores that are out there. Hmm. I'll, I'll keep I'll keep it to two. I'll, I'll talk first about Poltergeist, Jerry Goldsmith, because that mm. nearly made my top five. I think originally when I just, off the top of my head, come up with my five favourite horror film scores, I think because Poltergeist has always been one of my three favourite horror films or thereabouts, mm. immediately I put the score in. But listening to it, it it's an amazing Jerry Goldsmith score. It, I, I, I'm totally with you on that. It's, it's quite, it's quite a typical Jerry Goldsmith score. You know, it's got those lovely moments of like the sort of it's almost like children singing, which does hark back very much to Dario Gento the films and the scores there. And I certainly think that. Oh, I think I mentioned this on our Goldsmith episode. Some of those cues, you know, with with the the, the sort of child chorus, it is certainly from I think Deep Red or, or one of his films. I think it, yeah, it's either it's going to be. I think it might be Deep Red. I'm not 100 percent sure now, but I mean, it's definitely it's definitely Goldsmith paying homage. To, to, mm. to Goblin and you know the the, the scores from Talon Jallo films and yeah it, it's it nearly did make my list but it's just the other five I've mentioned um, having listened to that you know because I've listened to dozens and dozens of film scores in prep for this episode and mm. it just didn't stand out to me as much as it has previously because some of the others certainly you know Hellraiser and Psycho they just pipped it to the post they're masters aren't they they're really they're just 
know, and it's nothing about these lists are definitive. And it's like Richie Roberts often says, and has said to me this week when he sent me, you know, his picks. He said, "Ask me again next week. You might get totally different answers." And it's the same with exactly. me. Exactly. You know, this is just a you know a talking point. None of these lists are definitive. It's just a good basis for mm. you know a, a point of discussion. My other one is one that you've just mentioned. <laughs> And you know how I feel about this score and how much mm. I have just, I've, I've listened to it twice. You're almost back to back this week is Howard Shaw's score for The Fly. Now, Howard Shaw, his scores for Lord of the Rings, I think are the greatest film scores, period. I just think mm. they're unbelievable. Oh yeah, they're, they're fantastic. But I, I've never really seen much of those scores in his previous stuff and certainly his stuff with Cronenberg, but there's, mm. there's cues in this film which are literally like, like the main theme. And like that sort of what I would call the kind of science fiction side of the score for the fly, because it is a you know, yeah. horror science fiction. Because the original, obviously, the original was basically a, was the black and white with Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. Was horror, basically, it was a horror movie before yeah. stuff, wasn't it? And it's just that magical kind of uplifting part of the of the score, which just completely blew me away, which I totally it's, forgot. It, about. It's ringing in my head. I've got yeah. to hear it now in my head. Hopefully, if I edit this correctly, it'll be playing as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they're my two main honourable mentions, but yeah, there could have been loads more. But let's move on now to um, some of our listeners and uh, the Film 89 friends, family, you know, our, our wider crew who've uh, sent in theirs as well. And starting off with uh, one of the you know the main Film 89 team, uh, Stephen Amos, he has picked the following five. Number five is a film that he and Hayden and I discussed, well, two years ago for our Halloween episode. It was The Fog. That would be in my top five if I could if I could make room for it in another five. Mm. His number four is The Omen. Number three, yeah. Halloween. Number two, A Nightmare on Elm Street. And number one, Pan's Labyrinth. I haven't heard that for donkeys. I haven't seen it in donkeys years. It is no. It's one of those films where I've probably only seen it twice, but mm. it's ingrained in me as possibly Guillermo del Toro's best film. Richie Roberts, uh, again, one of the core Film 89 team. And as I said, he, he says this is not set in stone, but yeah, what, what, a, what a great list this is. Number five, Alien. Number four, Poltergeist. There you go, we've got two Jerry Goldsmith so far. Number three, The Shining. Number two, Halloween. Ah, good old Richie. Number one, Jaws. <laughs> Bill Scurry, he's gone for Morricone's score for The Thing. Goblin score for Deep Red, which again is one of my favourites. Fabio Fritzi score for The Beyond. Jerry Goldsmith score for Poltergeist. And Goblin score, this is one of your favourites, Steve, for Dawn of the Dead. Fantastic film. One of my favourites of the th- trilogy. John Arminio, who was on our last episode, the Rings of Power episode, he says, I can't get away from these classics. Now, I don't know what order they're supposed to go in, but I'll, I'll, I'll go from <laughs> top to bottom. He's picked Suspiria by Goblin, Halloween by John Carpenter, John Williams' score for Jaws, Jerry Goldsmith's score for The Omen, and Paul Giovanni's music for The Wicker Man. Now, Ooh, I didn't yes. put The Wicker Man in here because The Wicker Man contains a lot of songs, but these are not pre-existing songs. These are songs which were written and, and made for the film. Mm. All, you know, most of them by Paul Giovanni. So I guess this one could have featured. Certainly, The Wicked Man is one of my all-time favorite horror films. Oh, it's, it's a class, isn't it? Class yeah. movie. But yeah, great picks here by John. And he says a special shout out to all of the Howard Shaw's work with David Cronenberg. The mm. fact that he can be that creepy and unsettling, but then be so rousing and emotional with his other work, speaks to his talents as a composer. Which is yeah, just pretty much what totally, I just said. Hundred uh, percent. I'm totally with him on that one. Yeah. Good old Jacob Rivera, one of the uh, Film 89 team and, and, and one of our closest friends. Now, again, he's not numbered this list, so I'll just go from top to bottom. He's got Christine, Halloween, The Exorcist, another great Howard Shaw score, Silence of the Lambs, and mm. The Shining. 
and Alexandria Daniels, who was going to be on our Halloween-themed episode because the plan was Alexandria, Steve Amos, and I were going to do an episode on the new Hellraiser remake. But for reasons I'm not going to go into, we didn't do it. One of those (laughs) reasons is also because I did not like that film at all. Really didn't do it for me. And I haven't seen it yet. I don't think I want to. Steve hasn't been able to see it. Um, I don't think Alexandria's actually seen it yet either. I saw it the day it was released. And anyway, I'm going to move on. Alexandria has picked number five, The Omen, number four, Alien, number three, Halloween, number two, The Exorcist, and number one, Psycho. So we basically picked five films which are in you know, yours yeah, and my good, list. Good much, call, eh? Yeah, good call, yeah. To be honest, I think they've all done so well so far that they, they're not far off what we've been no. in there. So. Her honourable mentions are <laughs> The Fog, It Follows from 2014. Oh, it Follows is such a good modern horror film and it's such a... Mm. It's such a really nice homage to John Carpenter's style of horror. I really need to rewatch that one because it is a brilliant film. And her final honourable mention is for Maniac from 2012. Another member of the uh, Film 89 family is Adam Rakoff, who says, this is my list in descending order. Number five, The Invisible Man. Obviously, he's talking about the Claude Rains version. Yeah. Or is it the new one? I don't know. Number four, Psycho. Number three, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, yeah, I've got that score. It's fantastic. Oh, good one. Number two is Jerry Goldsmith's score for The Omen, and number one, Halloween. Another one of the Film 89 family, Kyle Reardon. He's picked Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Chariot, Chariot, so the, yeah, that, that one track, man, that blows your mind. Number two, oh, one of my favourites, and eagle-eared listeners, was in the little opening montage of this episode. The very first little piece of music is the opening track from his pick here of Jaws 2. He's also picked the score for Panos Cosmatos' Mandy, Psycho by Bernard Herrmann, and the score for Maximum Overdrive, the Stephen King uh, film. Yes, I remember. I can just imagine the truck now with Mm. the big goblin face on the front of it. Uh, Leighton Winston, another member of the Film 89 family, he's picked The Exorcist, The Thing, The Shining. And he says the opening 12 minutes of Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, Johnny Cash's The Man Comes Around. And he's picked Takashi Miike's audition. Interesting. Another close friend of the Film 89 team is Moose Matson, star of The Hobo with a High Kick. He's picked, and it's no particular order to this one. I'll go in from bottom to top with this because I think that's the order he meant it to go in. He's got Psycho, The Omen, The Thing, Halloween, and Jaws again. You know, <laughs> what a perfect list. And oh, we have to. Sorry, I can't go through the entire list of people here, but one more. Right. Charity Schmidt, who is one of our most loyal followers, and you know we love her to bits. Charity said <laughs> she she's allowed to do this. So she says, "Sorry, but I added six instead of five. It's too hard to decide." Now Charity sent us a tweet with images of these films. She's picked Slither. Twenty eight oh. days later. Now she's the poster she had up is for Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, but I don't know if she actually meant the original George Romero Dawn of the Dead, but yeah. Dawn of the Dead it is. 30 Days of Night, The Thing, and Poltergeist. Some of the people there have literally picked lists which overlap perfectly with ours. It's made for it, isn't it, really? Mm. <laughs> There's many other composers out there. I mean, I love Charlie Clouser, who did the Saw movies. I know that they're not everyone's cup of tea, mm-hmm. but the, the actual, some of the scores are there are just so, they're very industrial and yeah. sort of thing. And I, 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 I've got a couple of albums of those, and... And Henry Mantini, Henry, no, Henry, Mantini, Henry um, the, you know, the, the Friday the 13th movies. And, you know, if it wasn't for Carpenter 
and the slasher and psycho you wouldn't have had those sort of themes going with those the same sort of thing that we've seen throughout the years with you know with the violins making those sort of slashing noises and whether it's that or the burning or anything and just there is so many scores out there i mean i know i'm a great fan of carrie I mean, you could do another podcast and you could pick another five or another ten. Yeah. Like I say, it's just, you know, a, the sort of pivot for a point of discussion. Mm. But yeah, you know, there's so many could have gone on my list which just got edged out. And again, if we do this this time next year, we could come up with different lists altogether. But I certainly think there's going to be a couple of stickers. There's going to be ones which are not oh, yes. a bunch. Shall we do some listener questions? Because we did put out a tweet and we have had a few responses. And because it's our Halloween episode, I think some of these just, I think they need to be answered. Let's have a look. Oh, another Stephen, not you, but Stephen Ward via good old email asks, what is your favourite horror film franchise? I feel that so many horror franchises start well, but ultimately suffer from the law of diminishing returns with the sequels really ever topping the films that started them off. They've all, he's right though, every, he's spot on, because anything you pick, you know there's a bad apple in 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 the package. Okay, but... If you're saying that the first film in all of these franchises are, is is maybe you're saying they're they're often the best. I don't. I, I shouldn't. Don't think they're always the best. With Halloween, undoubtedly. But I've got to say it. I will always prefer a Nightmare on Elm Street three Dream Warriors to the first film. And obviously, really, yeah, I do. I really do. I am not a huge fan of 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 the first one. I'm not. And I know Steve Amos would stick his clawed glove into me for saying this, but I'm just not. I remember, I think it was up to about the third one. Then I think I watched more on VHS afterwards. Yeah. But then again, you know, that franchise has gone from the, the creepy to the, the the bizarre to the stupid. You know, Freddy became kind of... He was a parody of himself. He was, he? but I don't think he was that scary in the first place. I don't know. I'll give him, I'll give him a shout out for taking out Johnny Depp. M- maybe he scared <laughs> me more as a kid. Yeah. And maybe Possibly. it's a case of when I'm watching now, I, I just don't find him as... Yeah. As, as terrifying as you know the likes of Pinhead or or Michael Myers. I mean, I can give you three film because well, it was in my list. I, the three Omen movies aren't that bad as a package, although the third one does dip a little bit. But, yeah, but but the fact that you've got a child who's like the reincarnation of Satan, and I think that for me is just far more scary than this kind of guy who is just <laughs> doing these silly things with his long arms and his you know, you know sticking his tongue out of a phone mouthpiece and oh god yeah. you know but then there are moments in the film which are genuinely scary like when it, that shape of him comes out of the wall above the bed mm, and the bath scene as well oh the bath scene is just fantastic but yeah alright yeah I, I don't know I don't I think if I had to say my favourite horror film franchise I'd have to say Halloween because mm. I love the first one unequivocally I'm a big fan of the second one apart from the fact that I really dislike the fact that it makes this connection between Laurie and Michael and the fact that they're brother and sister totally unnecessary and I, I just hate that aspect of the film but the rest of it you see I've got my gripes with the franchise because I know they've done like three different timelines now with this yeah and they're um, all over the place yeah and do you know what I still think I'm not going to say about the last one because I've got my thoughts on that and I'm not going to air it now here but with Halloween 1 and Halloween 2 it was one night yes and that's all you needed yeah. You didn't need anything else. But then... He died at the end, you know, and spoilers in Halloween too, but if you haven't seen it by now, then you should be shot. But that was it. One night, you know, it broke up when she went to the hospital and then he, he, he followed her to there. And, you know, you obviously had, um, you had Loomis as well. So you had the whole package for the two movies. And that's all you needed. You didn't need anything else. I mean, Halloween season of the, season of the Witch is a great film. It is. 
it, it, I, I just love it to bits. I love the score as well. It's very synth with Alan Howarth um, hopping on with him with that. And then the other one's petered away with the curse and, and everything else. And then obviously H2O, which you, you were speaking about earlier. Yeah. And that timeline. And all I'm going to say about the latest timeline, I did I did enjoy the first movie. Yes, I'm, I'm a big fan of the 2018 film. I really enjoyed it. Obviously, anyone who listened to last year's Halloween episode where myself, Alexandria and Steve spoke about Halloween kills. It's got its flaws, let's put it that way. Yeah, that's being... But yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I just really want to... I'm not going to say anything. I just, I'm so, I'd love to, but I can't. I know, don't worry. But I did enjoy 2018. I, I'm, I, I think I got a bit of a kick when I went to see um, John Carpenter play in um, Shepherd's Bush. And near the end of the show, he's, he, he played... Because it wasn't even released then. He played some of the music. They played the opening theme for it and a few bits and pieces. And on the screen was a, a couple of screenshots and the bits of the, where Michael Myers and the two podcasters out in that mosaic part of the um, hospital, which was used in Colombo, by the way, if anyone's noticed it like I do. Yeah, fantastic. I, well, I, I'm, I'm sticking with Halloween because there, there are four Halloween films that I either like a lot or actually love. Mm. So yeah. At some point, we'll, I'd, li- I'd like to have a chat with you about the last one when you get to see it. I will. Have I to will. Pick your brains on that. But um, I, I, I feared that it's uh, controversial. It's controversial, and I, th- I still need to see it again. To be honest, I think I need to see it a second time. I, I, I agree with you. The Halloween franchise has been going for what, forty-three years now, whatever it is. And there are some absolute stinkers in this franchise. But then, like so many horror franchises, then you know there there are some real turkeys. Friday the 13th, there's some great movies there. And then they got a bit stupid. And then you had Jason Voorhees then fighting Freddy Krueger. You know, it's just a mess sometimes. Even though I think that movie might be better than... You're going back to Stephen's question. (laughs) My favourite Friday the 13th film is Jason Takes Manhattan. uh, Come at me. (laughs) Come at me. (laughs) It's garbage, but it's hilarious. And it's got that scene. It's when he he walks against those dudes with the the big ghetto blaster. And punches a guy's head off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know. So, next question. Emily Rucker, she asks, oh, God, this yeah, this actually ties into something I, I've just said. Who is your favourite horror icon? As a child, I was always terrified of Freddy Krueger. The burnt skin, the bladed glove, and the fact that he came for you in, in your dreams always made him the one I think of first, and the one that fit in me gave me nightmares. So, favourite <coughs> horror icon. If I'm to say that I had a nightmare, there's only one person that gave me nightmares. And when I saw the film, I went to bed the next night and I saw her sitting on my bed, looking at me, spinning her head. Which oh, had been Reagan. 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 Yeah. And that freaked the freaking hell out of me. I was only 15 at the time. So I was, then I, I, I mean, I grew up with Dracula as a kid and the Hammer Horror. But then at a certain point, nothing ever scares you after that, does it? Do you get that point where it, it's, it, you get the jump scares and everything else, but it doesn't... I don't know if it's... You're, you're used to it. Are you used to so much horror that it doesn't phase you out? No, the, the, the horror films that absolutely terrify me are ones which I've seen once and will never go back to. Films like Paranormal Activity, I've got this innate fear of the paranormal. Mm. And the, the, you know, the horror icons, like as much as there's something supernatural, obviously, and, and, and like ghoulish about Pinhead, he, he, he's a demon in, you know, from this you know, hell dimension, or, or you know, mm. if, if it's hell itself. But then you've got the likes of Michael Myers, which as much as they are supernatural elements, which must account for the fact that he can just traverse vast distances, you know, in, in you know, really quickly and being shot and burnt and shot again. And yeah, been, yeah. And, you know, it keeps coming. He's unkillable, you know, much like you know, like a Halloween kills. But yeah, 
I'm so unoriginal. You know, I picked Halloween as my number one. My answer to the you know the favorite horror film franchise is Halloween. It, it's gotta be Michael Myers. He has to be my favorite because if you said right, it's Halloween. It, it's fancy dress. Who are you gonna go as? I'd be like, get me a blue boiler suit. I'm going on <laughs> eBay now to find the most expensive if- Michael Myers mask I can find, and I'm taking a big. I tell you what. If we were doing a video podcast, I would put my Michael Myers mask on. You'll have to send me a picture later via WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm picking Michael Myers. Who are you going to go for? I could go for many variants of, of, of Michael Myers and very Freddy Krueger to Jason Voorhees. I've been growing up with, even at my age, Halloween. And from the first time I was seeing it on TV, I think, yeah, I first saw it on TV. And it's stuck with me ever since. And I think it will do. Whether, no, I won't say anything else. I'm not going to go there. You just want to talk about Halloween ends, don't you? I know, I can't. Uh, can't we'll have to save no, this no, conversation no. for another time. Um, I'm fascinated by Halloween. John Carpenter is my one of my heroes for for what he does movies and music and long may it continue until um as long as it can really because yeah. he's getting on a bit now yes but yeah like i say you know he's he's on my mount rushmore of directors i love so many of his films mm. some of his films are like my all-time favorites like the thing and halloween and you know escape from new york big trouble in little china oh, Precinct 13 yeah. christine uh, even films like Starman are just so good and you know and Halloween is for me his second best film I'm not going to say for me it's as good as The Thing but it is just so iconic and much of my answers in you know in, in, in this you know, topic tonight have related back to Halloween when I spoke to him about four years ago I almost was lost for words because you're standing in front of greatness mm. and as much as we did have a short conversation and I said I've got a few autographs on some vines and some posters and stuff that for me is a highlight of my whole life to be honest that may sound pretty sad to some people but I've been following his career for so long I can't really put, put into words sometimes how I feel about it yeah no same yeah. here same here so there you have it uh, listeners our favourite horror film scores now before you go flooding us with cries of disapproval of some of our choices these Top fives, like we've said, they really are only ever a focus for a point of discussion. They're not definitive by any means. But huge thanks as usual to all of our listeners for such passionate support of the podcast. Let us know if you like this format where we dedicate a whole episode to a favourite five or favourite ten. And maybe we'll do more of them if, you know, if, if you've enjoyed this. And please subscribe if you haven't already so you never miss an episode. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as that will help maintain our visibility on the Apple platform. Stephen, thank you so much again, my friend, for coming back on. It's been far no, too long. No, honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I've been, you know, I've been badgering you to do another show. And I know you have, so yeah. And I... There's a couple, there's a couple of movies out there that still need, you know, some seventies disaster movies. The boot is Stephen. We haven't even scratched the surface yet. We're eighty-six exactly. episodes in, and we are just only getting started. And honestly, I, you know, I love what you guys do, and I always promote you to my friends. And I think, you know. If we all get out there and, and pro- promote each other, we, we just get a good community together. And as much as people say social is can be crass and horrible, mm-hmm. I think between everyone that's, that you've mentioned today and those that have done the questions uh, with Wrong Real yourselves, everybody, they're a great bunch of lads and we, we don't, you know, it's just great to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah, we all kind of pull together and look after each other. But yeah, you know, it's been great as always even chatting film and film scores with you. But where can people find you if they want to chat about film, gaming or, or your epic collection of vinyl? 
so really the best place would be twitter at steve 7 <clears throat> that's the first place i've now i've had a, a youtube channel for some time i've now got it called the vinyl cues i think i've got about probably about 70 70 videos up there on, on different pieces of music from my collection and pop culture gamers we we do our gaming thing we are gonna well, i did have a chat with hayden on our last show and i just i just popped into my head i think what we're going to do at some point is do like a top 10 or a top 20 fright cues from horror movies. So we're going to hopefully at some point get that out there and you'll hear about that one. But yeah, that's about it really, I think. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. And you can find the rest of the Film 89 crew at Film 89 UK on Twitter and Facebook. You can find all of their uh, contact details on the website or also on our main Twitter page. But that's all for now. Other than to say, stay safe, be good to one another. But more importantly, well, actually, before we go, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Happy Halloween, everyone. It's almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the horathon and remember the big giveaway at nine. Don't miss it. And don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. Happy Happy Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Happy Happy Halloween, Super Shabbat. Happy Happy Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Happy Happy Halloween, Super Shabbat.